Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast centered at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. As always, on behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, I'm your host, Matt. I am a cis white gay man and Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and their voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Today's topic is group therapy. That's right, we're talking about sharing our struggles with other people. It's a scary idea, but we might just find out that being open and honest with one another is some of the greatest tools we have for our mental health. Joining me today is Kenji and Mar. Kenji and Mar, thank you so much for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns, please? Hi, I'm Kenji. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm the manager of group therapeutic services with the behavioral health department. And I'm Mar Mariana. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a group psychotherapist here. All right. So we're behavioral health, group psychotherapy, the whole thing. Uh, I prefaced it a little bit in the intro, but we're here to talk about group therapy, um, which I always love these kinds of topics because they're um, ideas or, or topics that people know a little bit about enough to like think that they don't need to know more Mm -hmm. um but upon diving in and learning how it all works people are always like oh wow there's so much more to know here um and group therapy is one of those i feel like for me when i think about group therapy uh probably my only exposure is like in media and most often it's like more of like an aa style setting and less Mm -hmm. of like actual psychotherapy in the way that we practice it here. So I'm excited to dive in more more into that. But um, I guess just to start, uh, for each of you, walk me through um, kind of what led you to working in this space uh, in, in behavioral health specifically and why at an organization like Howard Brown. No, you go first. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's nice being here, the three of us, and we're just kind of finding our timing of who... <laughs> Who jumps in first? Uh, I can share, I came to Howard Brown a few years ago, um, and my past position was doing healthcare chaplaincy in an inpatient context. Um, And I was doing some DEI work and consulting um, part-time as well. But I really wanted to get my social work experience here in an LGBTQ community setting and to be able to work um, with folks in groups. Howard Brown specifically attracted me because of the idea that we as staff could bring all parts of ourselves to work and that there was a culture of inclusivity around gender identity, sexuality, social justice. So those kind of things drew me to working here. And um, it's it's been really meaningful to do group work in a number of ways since being here. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Mark? I came to Howard Brown. I came here right out of graduating with my social work degree. Um, It definitely was kind of like a dream job situation where I really wanted to work in community mental health. I really wanted to work. I was so tired of being in spaces like where I was singled out for being queer or um, where I had to be like a spokesperson for that or where I like, you know, was running like the only queer group that was there. (laughs) Um, And so I wanted to be in a space where that was much more like normalized and just like kind of the air that we were breathing. Um, And I came to Howard Brown to do like to be a substance use therapist. So that's originally the team that I was on. Um, But yeah, I think I'll just 
tease it a little bit. I, I really, <laughs> I loved, like, groups was part of why I became a social worker. I loved groups. I had this moment of, like, I think I was made for groups. Like, I think I, you know, I feel so passionate about them. And so when the team was started at Howard Brown, um, I was super excited and really excited to join the team and, of course, to work with Kenji also. Um, so, yeah, that's what brought me here. Awesome. Thank you both for sharing. I always love asking that question because everybody has, I mean, it's similar motivations and impressions, but it's, it never hurts to hear everybody's perspective on what brought them here because that's always, mm-hmm. I find, a big part of the, the driving um, motivation behind people uh, and, and their roles here because everybody is so so passionate about their work and, and does such great work. So it's always, always interesting to hear. But um, speaking broadly about... Um, behavioral health, which most people who maybe aren't in healthcare would refer to as like mental health um, generally, right? Is, or what is the difference there? Yeah? Yeah, I think it's a, a difference in terminology. I have a colleague who says behavioral has its own particular baggage. Maybe it's medicalized or just about human behavior. And hmm. I, like, I like the frame of mental health as uh, more encompassing of different aspects of human experience. But Behavioral health is, is our department. Okay. Name. So, so well, I was gonna say it's the department name. Yeah. Well, not anymore, right? It's therapeutic services. Uh yeah, therapeutic services. I think in the behavioral oh, health. Oh, within behavioral health. Department. Okay, okay, yes. Okay, okay. Layers upon layers here. <laughs> well, behavioral health, mental health, however we want to slice it. Speaking broadly, mm-hmm. outside the perspective of groups, um, the this is an incredible role of a lot of importance, especially right now. I mean, we always hear the unprecedented times, which I have to like put eye roll emojis kind of on either <laughs> side. Eye, eye roll emojis and not because mm-hmm. I mean, it is unprecedented. It is obviously something people haven't been through regarding the pandemic and everything, but yeah. that phrase has become so ubiquitous. It's, it's a little bit much, but um, for both of your roles, you know, during this time, um, how, how, how has it been? Because uh, I asked this question right when we started this podcast a year ago mm. to the then director of um, behavioral health services. Um, oh, right. But things have changed since then. So I just want to hear, and, and you're the ones actually treating patients. So so how are things, speaking broadly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about a group like The Bridge, um, which was a group that was offered, not while I was on the group table, so I don't want to misspeak, but specifically in response to the pandemic, folks wanting a community space that was also a therapeutic space. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like, I don't know, people are really longing for that connection and to be in space with people, um, which I think has had a huge impact on folks like wanting to, to be in group therapy, but also, you know, there's still a lot of the same barriers um, that might impact folks actually being able to come to group therapy. But in terms of the desire to to not just do therapeutic work like one-on-one with an individual therapist, but to be able to do it in community with others. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I laughed at your eye roll, Matt, around <laughs> unprecedented. I mean, it, it is and it is in unprecedented mm-hmm. times for, for therapy and for group therapy thinking about the founding of the mental health field in Vienna in the late 1800s, at least in the Western psychotherapy frame. And that was on the eve of a big pandemic, global pandemic of war of, you know, so in a sense, I feel some comfort of we've always been doing mental health as a field under these 
really straining conditions. Mm. But I think you're exactly right that there's mm. something about the pandemic, Howard Brown Health being a, a safety net mental health care provider, and all of the pandemics of despair, isolation, loneliness, um, depression, anxiety, substance use, all spiking during mm-hmm. the during the COVID pandemic. Um, I think we're seeing the intersections of all of that in our work very yeah. much so. For sure. For yeah, sure. I asked the question because it's interesting just in uh, social media and in day-to-day like uh, talking with people. I've noticed uh, since the pandemic, the the like language that we use to talk about mental health and just like the openness that we talk about our own um, mental health struggles with has like gone way up. Uh, mm-hmm. I've talked about it in a few other episodes um, where we talk about, um, you know, um, anxiety and ADHD and, and other behavioral health um, diagnoses that like people are just casually be like, oh, I was disassociating and just kind of like throw around clinical words mm-hmm. like that for yes. better or for worse. We dive into like whether or not that's appropriate on that episode. <laughs> but um, I, I think that um, idea of like people are, are increasingly more able to talk about mm-hmm. their uh, their mental health and, and ask for those resources from, you know, their jobs or from loved ones and say like, I need space. I don't have the bandwidth for this. I would love your assistance, that kind of thing. So um, it's encouraging in a way I feel. Um, and so I also feel like because of that, this group therapy space is so, uh, has it gone up in your opinion, the, the, the number of people wanting to be in a group therapy space since before the pandemic or, or after, if you can speak to that? Uh, that's an interesting question. And I think you're right. The increased level of discourse around mental health, there's a for better and for worse um, to it. I think part of the for worse is um, the way that um, influencers or multi-level marketing schemes or like these other places will sort of blur community and consumerism. Mm. And there, there has been, mm. um, I think, a real cost to the cheapening of how sometimes we throw around these phrases without really appreciating the meaning of them. But I just want to circle back to what Mar said earlier about how important healing in a group can be. And with witnessing, especially gathering in groups where members hold identities that have historically been persecuted. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a sense that there, it may be the case that some of the increased awareness around mental health language, at least in certain communities, I don't know that that's kind of trickled down or affected all um, communities, but has really, um, allowed folks to be more open to, wait, could I join a group? Could I lie on the couch? Could I do a virtual therapy session? Um, what, do you, what do you think? Lie on the couch. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? Are there sh- like shade lounges in, in every like therapist's office that people can recline? And- oh, it is a thing. They're very expensive. So I don't uh, have one. But Is uh, there like a medical reason for that? Like, like they encourage you to actually like physically change your posture in order to do better you know, I think I think the idea of the the lounge. Which this is, is a tangent. Sorry, no, but <laughs> the, the chair is that. Yeah, exactly that. That our our bodily posture is connected to our mental state. There's also the experience of in those kind of treatments, the therapist, the analyst is behind you, so mm-hmm. you're not seeing their face. Mm. You're just there to sort of talk as openly as possible. It's hoped, but yeah, interesting. That's a little bit the couch. Well, have you like the original? I think psychoanalytic groups was one analyst yes. in the center and then like a bunch of it's like 12 couches yeah 12 couches all around and the person the therapist and, that's yeah right. and everyone has their head like toward like no one's looking at each other like a sunflower yeah oh that that's not how, groups, how we do that's not how we do group <laughs> okay, okay if you come to group we won't have 12 couches but interesting yeah huh. 
Anyways. I do have a sense that the isolation of the pandemic um, may have primed folks, at least some of the folks we're, we're seeing in right. our program. When the wound is, the part of the, 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 the struggle is so isolating, obviously part of the healing has to be the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's it very well sense. said. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would guess, and given how uh, like mental health is talked about in like online and in social media spaces, that like the increase in demand for individual therapy has been much higher than mm. the increase in demand for group therapy. Because I think that's kind of what people think of when they think of like exactly getting right. therapy. They think about getting a, a therapist, like an individual therapist. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think part of the reason why I was excited to come on to this podcast is to like talk more about group therapy. I think it's, um, can sometimes be a bit of an overlooked way of, of getting, uh, you know, behavioral health services. Yeah. That's a perfect, perfect segue. Cause I wanted to dive into like the meat of this episode, which is mm-hmm. group therapy itself. I think that's absolutely correct that, you know, when people, uh, with the in the advent of like better help and stuff uh mm-hmm. yeah which, exactly say what yeah, i was saying we can we're gonna skip over better help as an entity but um with the the rise of like awareness around mental health it's always individual um and i suspect mm-hmm. that group is just as much of a um solution as individual and i'm excited to yeah. talk about like what what situations weren't you know which if they're interchangeable that kind of thing so mm-hmm. um just to kind of broach that topic broadly can you uh, either of you give a definition like of, of group therapy it sounds like a dumb question because it so it describes itself but what you know in terms of clinically what what is a group therapy session not a dumb question at all and um, I think most people thinking of group have some of those kind of media references in mind that, that you brought in earlier Matt maybe the folding chairs the church basement, mm-hmm. the bad coffee, the, the styrofoam cups. Um, and those kind of groups are a valuable and meaningful way for folks to connect. Yes. They might not be considered group therapy in that they're more self-help or 12-step or kind of recovery-oriented in which um, the peer group, led. peer-led groups, mm-hmm. um, in which they operate in a different way than most group therapy would work. Um, mm-hmm. Group therapy is uh, what happens when a group of people come together under an agreement and uh, certain agreements under the guidance of a psychotherapist and have conversations with one another in ways that are meant to address personal, relational, societal issues. Um, I, I heard a quote, some, probably was from uh, like our group professional association that Kenji and I are in. Someone said like, like this may be a, sound judgmental is individual therapy, but it's not meant to be. Um, <laughs> like individual no. therapy is where you like talk about, yeah. are you familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. Wh- right. How does it go? Do you know? um, in individual therapy, you, you talk about your problems. In yeah. group, you, you experience them, you live them out, you rework yes, them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. In the treatment field. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I feel like that really explains <clears throat> group therapy. Like there's, there's a certain, um, it's really, it's almost like a little Petri dish um, where people get to really see what's going on, especially interpersonally, but Absolutely. also um, like intra, you know, in, inside themselves as well, because it's being evoked in them by the other folks who are in the group also. Yeah, that's an excellent, I love that analogy of a Petri dish. 
um, mm-hmm. like the little, um, are they like telomeres on a cell? The things that like reach out and like, I don't know, maybe I just made that up from high school chemistry, <laughs> but impressed. I had a, I had a, a, a vision of like, yes. yeah, if you're in individual therapy, you're talking about your issues in a vacuum. You don't really have that comparison against other people to know, you know, uh, is this pretty common for this? Are other people struggling with this? What was that solution like mm-hmm. that you used? And so in group, you can yeah. kind of pull in all those little right. tidbits. Or in that. like individual therapy, you talk about being annoyed with your friend. In group therapy, you're annoyed with the person sitting across from you. Oh, and invited like to speak, speak yeah, to it. Yeah, invited to speak to it, yeah. That's true. Okay, that's a whole other angle that I didn't think about. That group therapy... I assumed always that it would be like 12 strangers in a room, but there are group therapy instances where it's people Mm. that know each other or that have like came to solve issues related Mm. to Mm. their relationship. Um, I think Mar, I wondered if you were speaking to like the strangers, right. But Mm -hmm. the the developing of close relationships over time. So it can be, yeah. Uh, But there are also, we don't offer these kind of groups here at Howard Brown, but there are also group modalities of, you know, Folks in relationships come, mm-hmm. and um, but it's uh, more like yeah, relate couples therapy is different. Right, right. That would be a different like category. That, yeah. But you're saying that yeah, the you know if there's a behavior that people do that gets you annoyed, uh, you you might be able to more clearly articulate that with other people in the room. Be like, yeah, that thing that you do is annoying. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. what we're working on. Yes, even yes. if you don't know that person yeah. intimately, right? You can still at least have that mm-hmm. example. That okay. ten weeks in, you might know them. Right, right. that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's very well said. Okay, there's okay. So I have a lot of follow up questions after this. So, um, group therapy. When I think individual therapy, like I would go into a therapy session and, you know, on intake notes, would just say like, yeah, I got a lot of issues. Like I have things that I struggle, I struggle with. Right. But when I think of group therapy, I think more of group structure around like specific, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that these people are struggling with or specific identities and the things that they're struggling with as a result of that identity. Is that always the case or are there just kind of like general, like, come and talk about your problems groups. How, how do those groups get laid out and what is the methodology behind that, I guess is mm-hmm. what I'm asking. Yeah, both. I would say okay. there's both groups that are organized and structured around like a specific topic. For example, like our grief and resilience group would be around grief mm-hmm. and loss um, and groups that are quite open-ended um, like Kenji runs couple of those groups um and then we have groups that are around certain like you might seek out an individual therapist who's especially trained in a certain modality because you want to get that kind of therapy you know kind of for for all that you're bringing into therapy um similarly with group you can go to a group that's run in a specific modality like uh dialectical behavior therapy is one example Mm -hmm. of like a skills group where you're going to talk about like an array of you know whatever you want to talk about to bring in, um, and you'll be working on that. And the group would be structured around this specific modality, you know, learning those skills related to that. Yeah, okay, so it, it can be stratified by identity, by the, yes. the methodology, the the actual practicing of the therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, that's kind of a menu of like, you know, what am I seeking from exactly. this? Uh, exactly. What kind of way do I want it to be addressed? Um, okay, that makes sense. Matt, could I just add on? To Absolutely. That? I have a sense that a lot of times when folks think about group, they may be thinking about more of the affinity or themed groups, mm-hmm. some of which we offer here, like Mar said, 
grief and resilience. We offer groups for folks exploring gender or gender identity or wanting to build community and with other trans or gender expansive folks. We have substance use focused groups, some groups that may feel more classroom oriented in which we're sort of teaching or modeling mindfulness skills or things mm. like that. Um, but I also think that some of the kind of groups which can be really rewarding are mm-hmm. general um, process oriented groups in which you know, folks kind of come in um, you know, wanting to talk about what's going on in their lives and then are also open to how, how those things are being relived or repeated in the group itself. I think that's, I think those kind of groups are one of the reasons that the literature shows that group therapy is as effective or more effective than individual therapy um, on the aggregate level with a variety of mental health presentations symptoms. So I'm joining with you, Mar, about how excited I am to be able to really say that groups are not a second rate treatment modality, Mm -hmm. um, but an accessible um, way for folks, for us to be able to serve much more folks with our existing mental health services, I think in a pretty unique way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a, that's an excellent point and kind of brings me to my next um, kind of question, which is, I feel like people, if they think about group therapy, might think about the structure, especially as it relates to the amount of time that they get to participate Mm. Uh, because I know for me uh, sometimes individual therapy sessions uh, I am speaking what feels like nonstop for 45 minutes or an hour uh, and that just scratches the surface so for me if I you know ill-informed think about group therapy you know while I just talked in individual therapy for an hour if I'm sharing an hour with 10 other people I can say things for 10 minutes and that's gonna you know do nothing. Why join? Um, right. So, so how are these set up, um, and what people? What are people maybe not taking into consideration when they have that concern? Well, you know, it's a necessary fiction that individual therapy is sustained by, which is that I'm the only person in the world to my therapist. They have other clients. They have a life outside mm. of here. No way. <laughs> They're here for me for the time I have with them mm-hmm. each week, and that group necessarily challenges that. Um, illusion that we're, it brings up our own sibling conflicts. If we have those, brings in family things, we're sort of competing or feeling as if we're competing for time or attention that may be happening on an unconscious level as Mm -hmm. we're preparing to join a group. But I think it's totally a normal feeling. Um, Be curious for your thoughts on this as well, Mara, but my sense is that the group therapists um, who are really committed to creating a space of healing for folks would want to be attentive to how someone is showing up in the group over time that it's not as if every single group session is, is um, divided into um, how, how much time each individual person is speaking, but that over time, um, we might be able to reflect on the patterns of when someone shows up or disappears or what it's like to fear getting lost in the crowd or being found. Um, there's this great Winnicott quote about how it's a pleasure to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. And I think all of that stuff gets stirred up Mm -hmm. as we're preparing to engage in a really vulnerable thing with, as you said, a group of strangers, potentially. Mm -hmm. That's, do you have have a follow-up for that? Because I'm still processing. I love the, the, the quote, it's a, um, a pleasure to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, because I think part of maybe something people don't consider is that part of the healing comes from that uncomfortability with not having all of the time to yourself, mm-hmm. um, teaches you, it kind of frames your problems in context with other people. Um, you know, you know, I can, and, that, and this is a concept 
that I am particularly grateful you brought up because it's something that we're thinking about a lot within this whole organization is how do you make healthcare a community process and not just an individual because obviously, you know, HIPAA is necessary for a reason and, and medical problems, you know, a lot of the time should remain private, but there is a lot of merit to the idea of processing healthcare, both, you know, in terms of the physical, literal sense that people might think of when they think of healthcare and the, the behavioral health, mental health portions of it in a community. Um, so yeah, that concept of maybe the anxiety that I'm feeling about not having all this time to myself, maybe I should take a step back and think about why that is the case. And you know, maybe understand that listening is also as healing as speaking can be mm. um, in this world where everything is, let me amplify my own voice on all these different platforms. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Reading myself on that one because I am a, so the social media coordinator. So I do do a lot of talking uh, and listening is not always something I'm so great at. But well said. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, that's just a super interesting concept that like m- maybe that uh, discomfort is necessary and mm. maybe you should sit in that for a second I don't know mm. maybe that's just me maybe I'm therapizing myself right now um <laughs> look what groups can do right look yeah. What groups this is yeah. the first group that's true that this is the first group I said podcast. that before we started recording that this is the first time I have multiple guests so we're yeah. really and it's really fitting yes wow. we're really in it the stars are all the stars are all aligning <laughs> this is perfect so is there is there any situation or um, concern or um, identity where you would look at somebody and say, group therapy is not what you need right now. This would be something for individual only. Um, and what might those situations be? Maybe I can just speak yeah. to that in part. I mean, I, I have a mentor who says, uh, if you're breathing, you could benefit from a group, um, which is, I think, true, a bit irreverent and um, maybe not the case in every situation, but... I do have the sense that probably most human beings who are seeking mental health care could benefit from some kind of group, especially if that group is is run in the right way. Um, We do screenings for our group members to make sure that folks are um, in a position of being able to really benefit from the content of the group itself. So we'll screen for risk and for crisis and at times say, we think the kind of groups that might serve you best would be actually in an intensive outpatient capacity. Mm -hmm eight hours a day, five days a week, like wow. that, that that might be a level of group care. Or, you know, this might be a good group for you. I hear how much you're also doing self-help or um, 12-step or these other kind of adjunct groups. Or So I have a sense that, um, you know, it may be helpful to do individual therapy, particularly um, in a longer-term capacity as an adjunct to group, if, um, if and especially there were really long-standing things that you wanted more time to process with one therapist or... Um, if you were going through an acute crisis in which sharing the time in that group in that beautiful way you articulated, Matt, speaking and listening, if, if that was too unmanageable at this time in your life, it might be the case that you could do some individual to prepare for a group experience. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree. I, yeah, it's hard to think of any situation where it'd be like absolutely no group would be useful or effective for or any particular person. Um, yeah, I think as Kenji was saying, maybe sometimes like having time to prepare for a group or especially if group is going to be like really kind of stimulating or um, 
may bring up a lot for this person also being an individual therapy at the same time. So there's kind of that space where you can, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, also process individually. Um, Maybe it would be something to look at. But, yeah, I I can't think of a situation where it's like there's just so many different kinds of groups also. Right. um, That can hold different levels, like Kenji said, different levels of acuity. Um, Yeah, different presentations. So, yeah, I agree. That makes sense. Yeah, and then – they're not mutually exclusive and any good group therapy should probably include at least in some portion processing what that means either alone or with another um, Mm. therapist. So, I mean, that, that absolutely makes sense. And from the, the way you both have described it, like there are so many iterations of groups that, you know, if one's not working, there's probably somewhere else, maybe not at the same organization, but somewhere that, you know, will allow you that kind of processing that you need. Um, Are there, and you mentioned it right at the outset there, it, it, for a group to function, it probably has to have a set of like rules or like standards or decorum uh, yes. because, I mean, I've had it in a few like um, meetings here at the organization, like large meetings where people are voicing probably personal opinions that... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the outside of the meeting, somebody will have like established some ground rules. Like this is how we make sure everybody gets enough time to speak. This is how we make sure that people aren't using really pointed language, things like that. Uh, I'm assuming those exist within group therapy. What are the kind of the most common practices as to like how one carries oneself in a group therapy setting? Well, I, I'm sure there there's many, so we can go back and forth. I think a couple that are um, really important with group therapy as opposed to maybe a group meeting, like a work meeting or something. Um, You mentioned earlier like HIPAA. So the idea that this is like a therapeutic setting. um, And so there's different uh, boundaries around confidentiality Mm -hmm. that we want to like really underline and have an agreement around as a group. Um, You know, just because we are in that, you know, in a behavioral health setting. Um, yeah. So, so it d- does like, do they almost have to do like HIPAA training? Not like a full HIPAA training, but like you have to, is there any form of like, I agree that I'm not going to say what happens here outside of this group? Or is it like, is there like a hard boundary? Or is it just like, Hey, like don't air everything out in public that we talk about? Sorry, completely yeah, interjected yeah. that question there, but. No, I mean the, there are like agreed upon norms than group specifically around like, um, like giving out really detailed information. And I think in the era of Zoom, the one that's more like the really strict boundary would be like if you're doing a Zoom group, like you can't have someone else in the background mm. who could like come see, you know. Right. And I, but I don't know. Is that kind of our boundary that we're our confidentiality boundary that we're holding as clinicians that we can't, you know, if there is someone else in the background, like that's on us as clinicians to hold that boundary. I think, um, yeah, these are great questions. I just want to come at them maybe in a in a different way, but yeah. also also respond. Like the story you told about the group meetings or maybe you're in like a public forum or like Parks and Rec, there's those like meetings oh, yeah. where the people like come and yell at them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, or if you came from a family where like it was said, this is the rule, but then like mm. that rule was never held to. Or I mean, if you had a boss like that or... I mean, how how demoralizing and disappointing it is to feel like, okay, the terms that we agreed on are not 
where this Being isn't working help, clearly. Right? I think I think our group members approach us with that same expectation that the agreements of confidentiality, legal and ethical for the clinicians and ethical but not legally enforceable for right. group members, mm-hmm. which is an area of, ex- area of exposure of risk. Um, agreements around not attacking, not name calling, you know, speaking for emotions rather than kind of from the seat of them. Um, agreements around trying to be as open as possible with what you may be feeling, showing up on time, paying your bill. Mm-hmm. You know, that frame, I think, is what gives us permission to interact in a certain way with our with our groups and to lead them. So it, it does feel important to me that um, group therapists really take those agreements seriously. Yeah. And I think the question is, is reflecting what a lot of po- uh, folks approaching group are thinking, which is like, Am I going to be safe in here? Mm. Am I going to get ganged up on like I did in school or in my family? Or, you know, is this a place where I can really try to bring different parts of me? And and um, so it, it, I think it just stirs all of our previous associations of groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great response. Yeah, that that um, kind of speaks to a question I had later on, which is like, what what do you say to somebody that's like, yeah, like I'm down for group therapy, but like that's airing out a lot of stuff in front of a lot of people that I don't know uh, yeah. and opening myself up for critique possibly. Um, and that can be uncomfortable. So it's, you know, encouraging to know that any good clinician, any good group therapy, group therapist uh, mm-hmm. would have those structures in place to make sure that people feel um, validated and comfortable enough to, to share what they're going through. So good, uh, good, good encouragement there. Um, yeah. I to that end, like how does your approach as a therapist change a ton uh, going from like a group setting to an individual setting or vice versa? Or maybe a better way to phrase that is um, what are like the unique challenges of overseeing group therapy in terms of just like either logistics, changing the, your language, you know, the, the processes that are behind the scenes, um, what are, what are some of those challenges that you might have experienced um, kind of running these groups? Um, Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, Obama called him my favorite philosopher, said that groups are more immoral than individuals. And you think he, I think he was thinking about the kind of groups that have caused great harm in the world, hmm. historically, contemporarily, true then as it is now, I think. Um, when leading a group, I feel like it's really important for the clinicians to be aware of how we're recreating in some ways the as a microcosm of wider society, these patterns of, of oppression and pain that are really linked to our mental health. So how are we as group therapists, especially aware in a group setting of interrupting microaggressions, of mm-hmm. the impact of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of heterosexism? Of, um, and that frame is really different than an individual treatment in which we may be holding some of those frameworks, but also um, have a bit more flexibility, I think, and kind of how to engage with uh, a client's political education. Or um, So that's one thing that comes to mind uh, around groups and how it kind of shifts the frame among many other things, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think um, the, Obviously, there is power at play in within individual therapy between the therapist and the individual. Um, I think it is in some ways a little more palpable and plays out in different ways, as Ken's alluding to, in a group space um, where there's multiple members and one or two facilitators. Um, 
And so, yeah, definitely being mindful of how you are holding that power, um, using it, like Kenji says, to interrupt, um, to stand in between, you know, systems that are touching down in group therapy. Um, and so I feel like, going back to your question, in terms of, I don't know, an individual versus group therapy, I think in, in group therapy, I'm like, trying to track a lot at the same time. Yeah, you're tracking the individual, you're tracking, you know, you're thinking back to your first session with them and their individual goals coming into group. You're tracking the relationships um, that are going on within group, which there's a lot of them. (laughs) There's a lot going on. The subgroups that are happening. Um, You're tracking the group as a whole, what kind of stage the group is going through, what that means the group you're tracking the systems that are touching down in group as they inevitably will um and the power that you're holding and how you're holding that frame um so i think as a facilitator there's there's a lot you're kind of trying to keep keep tabs on um yeah my my head is spinning thinking about that because if you think in an individual therapy session, you might be taking notes. And as a therapist, you know, if you have a long history with that patient um, or client, I guess, however you would, is which, 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 either way, either way. Okay. I think, uh, I think we have, you say client, both. I say both. Do you, you say patient? Usually, but. Maybe it's from our hospital. Maybe. Uh, I, I mean, it might be <laughs> setting dependent, I, I guess. I also like the, the origin of patient versus client. The root of patient uh. is one who suffers client is one who depends upon so it's like a playful but one, we who suffers. one who suffers and you right? prefer that i think it's honest yeah and yeah out. and you and i ideally therapy you don't want to be mm. in that in a dependency like driven thing like you, i don't know now you're making yeah. me think i should use client because there are there is dependency that's possible. right I, about, I don't know when i think of client i think about like when i go to a bank Right, right, and they're like preferred, or like clients. a customer. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, I feel it's almost I'm revered as a client. You know, oh, I see. Uh, oh, wow, this is very rich. We yeah, I, I do always like to try to dive into vocabulary because there's uh, all those little nuances, especially within healthcare, um, yeah, that yeah. can affect a patient's experience. Um, mm, so there, uh, so yeah. it's it's interesting to think about. We'll kind of keep both and you know mm-hmm. go back and forth, but those are. Uh, considerations that are running through our head, but that was a tangent. Um, <laughs> the the logistics of, you know, if I'm taking notes on a patient oh, and yeah. we have a long history, you know, you, you're also trying to think of what they said five sessions ago right. um, and then multiply that by 10 or 12 or whatever. And as somebody's speaking, you're maybe either making notes or recording it and then pivoting to, you know, let me flip the page to this other person. Right. It, like, that's just a lot to, to balance and also be thoughtful and actually process what they're saying, not yeah. just take notes and, and like you said, be mindful of, of group dynamics and, and systems and, and how it all comes into play. Yeah. I think that uh, is something that's really obvious, but something that I didn't think about about her, <laughs> that you <laughs> are giving everybody kind of their, you know, um, their own due process, I guess. Uh, Could I jump in on that? Yes, please. I mean, I I appreciate it as the therapizer or therapizers, (laughs) but, um, you know, you're making me think uh, part of the frame we hold around group is that the group itself Mm -hmm. can become the healing modality, you know, that it's not the magical powers of of, our team or our team members, but that just as human beings gathered for so many generations and groups and talking circles and 
that there's something about the solidarity, the witnessing, the altruism, the you know what you said about listening and sharing, that the healing power feels like really resides in the group. And oh, yes. I think that's helpful for us as group therapists as we deal with our own kind of transference, the unique ethical dilemmas that, you know, what happens when two members have outside. There's so much to manage in the group yeah. clinically and ethically. So I think we sort of derive a lot of meaning from feeling the power of that. I love that reminder that it's like not, it's not a spoke in a wheel where, you know, it's one no. center post and everybody kind of. The 12 couches. The 12 couches. The yeah, exactly. Kind of like yeah. a literal right. physical representation versus more of like an interwoven mat where everybody's kind of interconnected together for and, sure, and sure. aiding each other rather mm-hmm. than like mm-hmm. solely relying on uh, the therapist. Give me chills. I, <laughs> we're getting deep here. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of that, I had this thought where, um, you could say you were kind of talking about the managing the dynamic of the group. Uh, and it strikes me that like when you, and we've kind of, this is getting a little deep here. Uh, we've seen it a little bit on like social media, especially where people who are united by something, whether it's a struggle with something or a perceived struggle with something, um, especially when they exist together, kind of siloed can kind of take their group thoughts and kind of push them to a place that is no longer maybe grounded in reality or no Mm. longer um, a heavy handed example of this would be like politics on like social media where people they're in echo chambers. They're all, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're all have a perceived injustice and and because they only connect with each other, that's Mm -hmm. what they arrived at. So is there that like part of the mindfulness that you have in these sessions is understanding that like, you know, everybody here is, is here for the same reason. And because of that, we also have to stay rooted in, in reality and try not to come to conclusions too much as a group or to the wrong conclusions as a group, or is that kind of, um, a reach on my behalf? Not a reach. Not a reach. Interesting. I think that's a fantastic question. You know, the the Niebuhr quote about groups being more immoral than individuals. Mm -hmm. I learned that quote from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, Birmingham jail, where he says, like, there's something maddening happening in which we have this history in the United States with lynching. We have this in Europe. We have this all over the world that there's something lost in the frenzy, the mania of a group. I think we see this clinically when there's scapegoating in groups, Mm -hmm. which is when a group sort of consciously or not elects one member in a workplace or in a family system, says aloud or says with things other than words, you're the problem. If only you were gone, everything would be perfect here. And how how seductive and how dangerous that is for us as human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, how convenient that we then don't have to own the shadow parts of ourselves that we're putting in. Right. Seeing and point at it in other people. And that's right. That's yeah. right. So I think yeah. we try to be aware of that in our group leadership. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, aware of it when, like, I think the, like Kenji was saying earlier, I think the, the group modality is really powerful and you're totally going to get pulled into it as a facilitator also. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be really mindful about how, you know, like you're not scapegoating also, you know, kind of colluding with the group and that. Um, and so I think, yeah, being mindful of, like you said, what, what power a group has both for healing and kind of run away with destruction. Yeah. Destruction. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I think, yeah, it's it's been some of my, I don't know. Also, as you're asking that question, I'm just thinking about all the really powerful experiences that I've had, both as a group member and a facilitator in like these affinity-based groups where we can be in healing spaces um, with, you know, a shared identity that we often feel like we're the only one or Mm -hmm. have been um, marginalized in some way, um, that it can be so powerful to be able to do this really deep kind of healing work in those affinity spaces also. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think like anything, if it's, you know, it, is if it's able to be used as a uh, a powerful agent for good, it's also able to be used as a powerful agent for bad. So yeah. um, there's a lot of you know moral imperative on the person setting up the group to make sure that yeah. um, it's it's for the the better and not the worst. So mm-hmm. I I think that's a important consideration to have. And like to that end, um, we'll, we'll we're getting close, believe it or not. So I'll wrap up in a, a few questions here. But um, I I want to kind of think about this in terms of um the how kind of ethos of group therapy pops up outside of therapy sessions um and i feel like maybe people relate to this where uh i've had it before where you're like out at a bar with friends or like at a party or something and or just in any group setting honestly uh and you like are making small talk and you like have that moment of like oh wait you're this you you know it could be something as small as like an interest in something or it could be an identity thing where it's like, oh, you and I connect in this way and maybe it's two or three of you or maybe it's, you know, a bigger group and all of a sudden you're like, the floodgates open and you can like, you know, gel with that person and talk about everything and it's so validating and like, that's my favorite, like, that's why I go out because I love talking Mm -hmm. with people because something about a, you know, a single beer and then everybody wants to like group therapize. Uh, So (laughs) I like that impulse is so fun and it's fun when it goes well um is this kind of group therapy this notion of healing together of um processing things is it doable outside of a clinical setting if so what is it what could it look like and what are things to really be mindful of because i like to that example i mentioned like sometimes people Especially if it's, you know, something that alcohol is involved, they're like, oh, I overshared or I like trauma dumping comes all all Mm. around a lot. So how do you kind of seek out those opportunities to connect with people um, and and heal with each other while also being mindful of, yeah, oversharing, quote unquote, trauma dumping, crossing boundaries, that kind of thing? Is there good things for people to keep in mind if they're just kind of looking for those opportunities? Mm. I mean, I feel like healing in a group mode is happening everywhere all the time. Um, And I think people really seek it out. People seek out group spaces Mm -hmm. to process, to heal. Um, And yeah, I I think that's... But trying group therapy... (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think... Uh, not saying it as like a, a substitute for group therapy, but are there sure, are yeah, there yeah, yeah. ideas that happen in group therapy that people can also take out into their everyday life? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hope so. Um, mm-hmm. I have a mentor who said recently, you know, like if group therapy is going to the neurological gym, which we get to explore and experience all of these things related to emotion and inner life, like 
maybe we're doing like mental squats in that gym, but it's not like we're like doing that so we can do squats like as we walk around our neighborhood randomly. <laughs> like, like we have that mobility, we have that increased flexibility. There's a, um, in the Japanese American community, after the World War II incarceration, there was many decades that passed in which community members weren't talking about the experience. I wasn't born yet in the 80s, but I remember, I know the stories of hearing people publicly testify to what it was like to be incarcerated during the war. Seeing these older folks, seeing these men in particular, crying and talking openly about their experience, that fostered such a healing in, in my family and so many parts of our community. Um, that didn't happen in a clinical frame, but I'm with you, Mar, that there's something profound about healing, yes. the Me Too movement, kind of raising one's voices mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. I do want to want to just texture that to say that I think by the time someone might be considering a clinical group therapy or individual therapy, my feeling is that you've probably exhausted the other some of the other options, the good advice from friends, the and that this might be a space where with the boundaries of keeping contact in the group, you're not going to be like disinvited from the birthday party because of how you talk to someone there. Mm -hmm. right? And with some of the confidentiality that there may be room to try out a more flexible way of being that you can then bring to these external relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think the what happens in the Petri dish is not meant to stay in Petri dish. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're growing those muscles to be able to, like you said, not do squats in the neighborhood, but to, um, yeah, do something and, and like yeah. you said like like a, a petri dish is a microcosm of the whole mm -hmm. world and so That's you're right. take like we've said in in a couple different ways throughout the episode that like what happens in a group therapy session can kind of mirror what's happening or should in an ideal world mirror what happens on the outside so you're taking those lessons of of listening of of self-reflection of learning yeah. um granting space to people who need it uh and kind of trickling that in, in in little bits and spurts where it's relevant outside of it i see it more and more especially in online communities where um uh, you know trigger warnings and the talk of trauma dumping and really like putting really strict parameters about when and where people talk about uh their emotions or feelings or trauma uh is um, more and more a thing um and i see a lot of discourse about it in terms of like you know, the new generation is too, like, soft, so to speak. And, and I mm. always just imagine, I'm from a small town in Southwest Michigan, so I always just imagine, like, what my neighbors would say. Right. Um, and so this that's where this kind of line of thinking comes from, of, like, uh, the, the act of, like, you know, don't say this when you're around me, or, like, expecting other people to make concessions for you in terms of everyday life. Is that something that, you know we are good with or like what what is your thinking about sort of that online um mm. sharing culture where you know people are making strict you know rules and expecting other, you know strangers to abide by them or vice versa is there merit to that is that something that mm. we should be encouraging if it's what you need or i don't i don't know how to process all of it i think what is powerful in a group setting like if we were in a group, we could really dive into what that meant for mm -hmm. you, you know, and we could really dive into what it means for me yeah, that's right. and how, what it's pulling out for me and what that pulls out for you to, and what it means to be able to say that to me, you know, even if, you know, I go on and say something else or I, I don't know. I feel like in a group space, there's, there's just, 
as you've been alluding to, I think the the special like boundaries and um, frame that's held in a group space gives space for a lot of that exploration and really deep like meaning making that I think we can uh, have to skip over sometimes to build safety um, in like social media or whatever, you yeah. know, where um, the thing that does make the most sense is to put a trigger warning and to have really strict boundaries around that. Um, whereas in, because, you know, it's such a broad, you know, it's such a broad space that you're trying to like regulate in some way. I don't even, I don't know, like group moderators. I'm like, or page moderators. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, th I'm thinking about like job. Reddit, yeah. subreddits and yeah, like Discord communities, things like that. Right, that's, that's like a large, it's a right. super large group that you're trying to like. And I think in the, in the Petri dish of group therapy, it can be, we can go much, much deeper. I don't know, what would you say, Kendi? Yes, we did a, um, Mar referenced the American Group Psychotherapy Association, a conference we attended last month in New York. This year, as in the past 15 years, they've held an online group. Mm. This time it was over Slack. It was mm. on the, so they use, and there's, I think, similarly an importance of moderation. And right. we've seen the move fast and break things of Silicon Valley or like mm. what unmoderated, like 4chan. So mm. I think you're right, Matt, that those forces will be present and folks, you know, there's in each of us and in folks kind of seeking out a group. Maybe what I would say is just in a final plug for our program and services, like, um, that in group you get to know people from the inside out. Mm. Um, that if we had met at a party, we're kind of going from the outside in. What do you do? What do you like? What, and in group, a, a chance to sort of be together in a different way. Yeah. And um, I wanted to include that this Rumi quote that I found as I was preparing for this interview today, where he says, this is the, the Persian mystic, and I think the 12th century, who says, it's not our job to seek out love in the world, but to to seek out within ourselves all the barriers we've erected against love. And it mm. feels like this is what we can come to do as we're part of groups. So I'm hoping that if, any was, if anyone is listening to this and living in the state of Illinois and interested in being a part of an LGBTQ inclusive group of any kind, that they'll um, let us know and let our program know and um, that yeah. we could uh, serve you. Thanks, Kenji. All these quotes. Yeah, I I, you're you a repository. <laughs> and you also... <laughs> Some things up so succinctly because mm -hmm. my usually go to last question is like if you could put a bow on things like a moral to the story but you already did that real quickly I I loved kind of to the point of uh, trigger warnings and and all of that especially in online spaces I think people see that um, and that like please don't talk about this and this and this uh, and people think they're making those demands or they're, you know they're doing that because uh, it offends them or it's a, a selfish thing but i think in reality if you kind of recontextualize it as like time and place for that stuff mm. like you know if you're there's there's time and place to be emotional and vulnerable there's time and place to share with you know about that type of stuff this forum is not it uh but maybe here's an alternative place you can go for that kind of thing i think when people see that they just are like oh you're like you know being mm. you know uh Exclu uh, exclusionary or like mm. you're silencing me and I want to talk about this and you're you know you're not letting me and that kind of thing maybe it's uh, at least helpful for me to view it more as a you know that kind of 
discussion is going to be better served not here uh, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about it here's a place to go but it's not here here's the siren I know I made you, the disclaimer you. before we started recording there's going to be a siren so got to be in the last like 60 seconds right episode. on time yeah right on time um, it's very well said Matt that trigger warning or something it's a kind of boundary or is it kind of yeah. marking of the space yeah it's mm-hmm. just it's just it's uh, denoting the purpose of what you're there for and maybe talking about your intense trauma or you know abuse or, or anything like that is not what that space is for um, so I love thinking about it that way final words for both of you closing thoughts about anything we talked about anything that you really want to make sure we gets in anything like that um, yeah I mean groups have been so such a meaningful part of my life um, in all the forms. I think group therapy also has, yeah, it's, I'm just so excited about it. And I'm so excited to be, to be doing it here. And it's, it's really good. It's difficult work and it's good work. Yeah. And I, like it. I think, I think, you know, we're so excited about talking about group, but I also really understand it's fucking terrifying. Like thinking of exposing oneself in a, in this kind of way, like group is a scary thing for most people. Um, and uh, I think we have found that it's a space that can be really, really deeply meaningful for a lot of folks, often in really rewarding or surprising ways. So if we were in a group right now, I would say, I feel very grateful to both of you. I feel very close to you, Maren, to be able to do this with you. And um, I, I hope that folks will consider dreaming with us um, in our programs or in other healing spaces in the world. I love that. I have warm fuzzies. I was gonna say, if I, I this is not a group therapy session, but it, I feel like it kind of felt a little similarly to it. I still have great, you know, feelings about it. So if this was, you know, this this helpful and this fun to be a part of, I can only imagine what an actual group therapy experience would be. So yeah. to that end, uh, I won't hold you any longer. I know your time is precious, but I just want to say thank you to both of you for uh, lending your time thank and your you. expertise, not only here, but um, with Howard Brown in general, the work you guys do, um, the both of you do is, out of this world, uh, difficult and important and meaningful. And uh, if anybody gets anything out of this podcast, I hope it just drives home that point. So thank you to both of you. <laughs> thank you. Man. Thank you. It's really wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Charting Queer Health on group therapy. If you're curious about any of the resources listed in this episode, I will include the link in the description below. Also, while you're down there, there is a quick 30 second survey about what you like about charting queer health. We are always looking to improve, so I'd so appreciate it if you could take the time to let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.